Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So you're probably terrified, as I am, what's going to happen in the 2018 midterm elections. Will the Democrats be able to take back the House, or will the Republicans just sneak by and destroy the world? My guest today, Jeffrey Pollack, is going to actually be able to explain what could happen in these midterms, who could win, who could lose, and what's at stake. Jeff has been working in politics and polling for decades. He's worked on some huge campaigns, including New York Governor Andy Cuomo, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, Dan Malloy, John Carney, Joe Manchin, New York Senator Kristen Gillibrand, Attorney General. The list could go on for the length of this podcast, to be quite honest. He's going to join us today from Washington, D.C. to really explain what happened this week in Ohio and other states in some of these elections. And if Donald Trump is really a force to be reckoned with or if he could end up being the Republicans' Achilles heel in the coming elections. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been it's been a, a, a little bit of a hectic couple of days with uh, with yeah. these polls and midterms and all these things that are going on. Can you just give us kind of a lay of the land of what happened this week, and if that is any prediction for what's going to happen in the midterms in in a couple of months? Sure. Um, well, thanks, Nick, for having me, and I uh, appreciate it. Um, I. It has certainly been an eventful week. Of course, in the in the days of Trump, um, every day and every week seems to be an eventful week, politically speaking. <clears throat> so it's always unusual to say that this week was um, more significant than others, but it was um, uh, uh, because we had this massive special election in Ohio <clears throat> uh, in terms of the congressional race. Um, and that has told us a lot. But not only did we have the, the special, which got a lot of attention, but we, of course, had a bunch of primaries um, across the country in places like Kansas and Michigan, um, all of which have given us some intriguing uh, storylines. So happy to talk about those or, or, or anything else. Uh, more than anything, I think this week is yet another uh, piece of affirmation for the Democrats that things are looking better um, uh, and good for us um, and, uh, and, the, and the good guys um, uh, come November um, in terms of our prospects of, uh, of winning um, House and Senate races. Okay, so let's look at Ohio, uh, just so I can kind of have a little bit of an understanding of sure. what happened. So we have this 12th congressional district. Uh, yeah. We have uh, Troy Balderson versus Danny O'Connor. 
Um, when Trump ran in Ohio, he won by, I mean, it was what, it was like 18 points or something like that? Um, double digits, yeah. And this week, dub, double digits, and this week you had this race, and uh, when I look at the numbers now, and they keep changing every time I look at them, um, uh, Troy, the Republican, uh, has 101,772 votes, and Danny O'Connor, the Democrat, has 100,208 votes. So, yeah. I mean, this is a 500-vote difference. Uh, two questions. One is, could that change? Can that close based on any, like, you know, mail-in ballots or people who uh, r- rise from the dead and say, my ballot yeah. didn't make it or anything like yeah. that? Or is this a done deal? That's the first well, question. And the second question is... No, nothing's yep. a done deal. Nothing's a done deal. It's, it's a about 1,500 votes is, is, uh, is the lead right now um, uh, for the Republican. And so, sure, there's a possibility. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic um, that the results are going to change um, based on provisional ballots, but certainly it could happen. Um, uh, but but I, I, I think that that's not relevant to me. Um, I, I actually believe that we have already won. Um, I know that sounds odd to say that we lost a race, but we've won because, just as you said, Donald Trump um, won this district by double digits. The Democrats were outspent massively. I'm talking about five to one. Um, the Republican National Republican Party, in terms of the congressional campaign, uh, spent almost five million dollars trying to win this seat. I think I think the Democrats spent maybe a million dollars, maybe. Um, uh, and the reality is, is that there's no way that the Republicans can do this in every single congressional seat across the country. And the overperformance of Democrats in special elections is so consistent these days. Um, and what's happened this year that it is truly foreboding for the Republicans. And they, and they know it. It's not there, there's nothing about this that is. Um, a surprise at this time, they are well aware of the amount of massive trouble that they are in um, uh, in terms of these race. So, I mean, I know, I know, Nick, it sounds stupid, but I don't really care what happens to provisional ballots. Sure, I'd love the guy to win, obviously, um, but, uh, but whether or not we win this particular race or not, it's really about what's going to happen in November um, uh, and the amount of problems um, that, uh, that the Republicans – for sure, have um, uh, is made just is, is laid bare uh, by this uh, by this 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 most recent special election and many others. So, uh, one thing to, to that I'm curious about is I completely agree with you. It's astounding that it goes from double digit, you know, people voting for Trump to a, a margin of of, of uh, fifteen hundred people, um, mm-hmm. and it's not even a percentage point, but. But we, but we keep seeing these, this happen, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but we keep seeing this happen, and, and every time the Republicans just manage to squeak by, is there yeah. a chance that we should be worried about that? Yeah, I mean, sh- sure, and, and there's, I, I, I like that's something that, that if the Republicans want to feel good about things by saying that, they would be right. The thing is, these special elections have been so incredibly, I mean, these are, these are impossible seats for Democrats to win by and large. So... Most of the seats that we're going to be competing in in November aren't impossible seats. Um, the, and so, sure, they, they can. Um, uh, we can look at it. But, like, like let's just say Kansas 4. I mean, Kansas 4, we should have gotten 35%. So that's not a district that we would ever, ever, ever compete in in terms of, like, whether national – like the national party looking at it and saying we can win that seat. 
35%. We got 47% and we didn't spend a dime in that race. Like there was not any um, sort of democratic money that was, that was spent on it. Um, in a, a race like um, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the Ossoff race uh, in Georgia, where millions and millions of dollars were spent, and we probably should have gotten about 42% in that um, race, and we got 48 The one that people don't pay attention to, on the same day in South Carolina, a race that we didn't pay attention to, that we didn't spend millions of dollars, that the Democrats were not – again, we should have gotten 41% in that race, and we got 48 now, to be clear, we haven't lost all of them. Um, the Alabama Senate race, of course, an incredibly important one. We won that one, and that's a race that we theoretically should have gotten about 36% in. And then Pennsylvania 18, Connor Lamb, we probably should have gotten 39%, and he, and he wins. Um, so <clears throat> I think that, the, that it would be false hope. There's no question we have lost most of these special elections. And so if, if, the, if the Republicans want to sit and say, like, yeah, you know, you keep coming close, but you got to win – I don't think that's really comforting. Most of most of uh, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, who know um, that this overperformance means serious trouble um, in the kinds of districts that we need to win in order to take back the House. So, w- when you talk to your colleagues on the other side of the aisle, are they worried? Yep. Do they tell you? I mean, do you talk, do, do you talk to them? Do you guys like hang out yeah. and get beers and yeah? <laughs> we, we, we don't. What ha- is, we don't hang out feeling? that way, but but but, but <laughs> we are at conferences together frequently. We work together. Uh, we actually have a uh, an association called the American Association of Political Consultants, which is both sides of the aisle getting together and and sort of talking about issues that affect all of us. Um, so we do have relationships, and we sometimes do projects together. There are sometimes people who want a Democratic or a, and a Republican pollster. So sure, we talk uh, from time to time, and there's no doubt that the, the ones that I speak to are, are very clear and nervous um, about things. But it's not just the consultants. I mean, even um, some of the sort of most uh, hardcore folks, the, uh, a guy like Corey Bliss, for example, uh, who's in charge of the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is um, Paul Ryan's super PAC, he was the one who spent most of the money in in this last most recent special election, and even he said, like, you know, this is hard. Like everything looks hard, um, and the fact that they had to bring in the president, bring in the vice president, outspend the Democrats five to one in a race that the Democrats shouldn't have had any shot in hell of winning is is problematic. Now, does this mean we're guaranteed to win the House? No, it doesn't. Um, uh, none of us thought Donald Trump was going to be president either. So. Um, uh, there, there are no guarantees in, in politics, but all of the data that we have and know suggests things look very good. So, what? Let's go. Let's talk about Trump for a second. So, yep. you see these uh, these experiences where Trump goes somewhere. There's huge rallies, and of course, he could go anywhere. And there, I mean, even he could go to New York and L.A. There'd still be supporters rally, that show yeah. up at his rallies. Uh-huh. Are those rallies helping push? Uh, or is Trump support? I mean, when I see Trump is supporting someone, I think, oh my God, I'm definitely voting for the other guy. And I see people right. like say that on social media all the time that that, yep. that seeing Trump support someone incites them to actually go and vote. Is what is the Trump phenomenon? Is it is it helping or is it hurting? Uh, I think that it is. Um, uh, I think it is a mixed bag. Um, uh, I think that there, in midterm elections, um, there is certainly a need to bring out the base, uh, and so Trump impacts the base. So <clears throat> he, for example, excuse me, he right now 
is on a massive hot streak in terms of Republican primaries. Let's just talk about a primary for a second where he comes in and endorses somebody and they, I think he's like got an almost perfect record or something like that. Um, uh, so he comes in and endorses the guy like the take, for example, I mentioned Kansas, you know, Kansas, he came in and endorsed the current secretary of state, who's a total nut job, um, uh, and has been an absolute part of, um, uh, a true part of the vast right wing conspiracy. Um, uh, uh, and he came in and endorsed him over, um, the incumbent, um, and this guy, Kobach, the, the uh, current secretary of state, he won by 500 votes or and again, there'll be recount, et cetera. But as of right now, he's won. Um, uh, and I don't know that that would have happened uh, without the Trump support. Um, and certainly Trump has had an impact um, in things. Now, he also came into Pennsylvania 18 and, and it didn't work. He also came into Alabama. So it's not perfect. But what they're trying to do with Trump is to motivate the percent, the portion of the base um, that they need to come out to vote. But it is also clearly um, uh, having an impact. Trump himself is having an impact um, uh, in in lots of negative ways. So in more suburban, uh, college-educated places uh, where his numbers are weaker, um, Trump uh, is is not a factor. One of the things about this Ohio race, and and uh, uh, that that's important, is the the people who really know this race very well have looked at the data and actually seen that, interestingly enough, the rural areas of this uh, Ohio district didn't come out to vote. Whereas the suburban, um, the more suburban areas, they were more likely, and those people are more likely to have been appealed to by a John Kasich, for example, um, uh, in that area, than Donald Trump. The rural areas, who theoretically should have been more um, uh, inspired by Donald Trump, they didn't seem to come out. So if that's true, and we find that out sort of going forward, well, that's an interesting lesson in itself. Um, but maybe it means that John Kasich really uh, is the reason um, that we lost um, uh, this race uh, and, and not Donald Trump. When you look at the, um, the midterms uh, and what's coming up, um, let's kind of go through what's at stake here. So you have sure. – uh, um, what's that, sorry? Sure. So, yeah, so, so we have – we kind of look at the, the landscape. Uh, there's lots of different predictions. There's lots of people saying that uh, the, the Demo- it could be a blue wave. We've got, of course, Trump saying there's going to be a red wave. So we have um, Re- Republicans, of course, have the House and the, S- the Senate. Uh, and in November, there's going to be 35 Senate seats and 435 House seats that are up for re-election. What, what in your polling and your predictions and everything, what do you think the chances are of the Democrats taking back the House? And what, what needs to happen for that to happen? Yeah, I, I'm not going to give a percentage chance, like, you know, what, 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 what percentage chance. I think that things are, are looking good um, uh, for the Democrats when you look at the numbers writ large. Um, one of the things that we do, for example, is we use this thing called the uh, generic ballot, which is in national polls, we ask, um, if the election were held today, would you vote for the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate? And based on past history um, in midterm elections, the Democrats probably need somewhere around a six-point lead on that generic ballot um, uh, in order to, to take back the House. Um, and right now, if you look at some of the averages, the Democrats seem to have around a seven- or eight-point advantage on that generic ballot. So based on that data, 
um, uh, there are plenty of folks who are um, confident that the Democrats are going to take back the House. I don't ascribe to that, just to be clear. I think that it's more complicated than that and that the individual races, when you get down to them, um, are harder and that redistricting um, that the Republicans have mastered and, and did so beautifully after 2010 have made our path um, to victory for the Democrats much harder. So um, I don't know that just the generic ballot is enough. I look at these individual races up and down the the, the country um, and see tough races because the entire battlefield is to basically take out um, uh, uh, Republican uh, incumbents or to win open seats where Republicans have left. There are almost no Democrats in, in vulnerable seats, um, uh, according to all of the sort of neutral observers. And so anytime you're trying to take over, you know, beat an incumbent, incumbents win 95% of the time. Uh, and so I, I, I am um, skittish about using just the generic. Um, uh, if you put the proverbial gun to my head and said, do the Democrats take back the House? Yes. Do I think that it's going to be like some 60-seat massive victory? I, I'm not ready to say that right now. And frankly, it's too early to make those predictions. It's a long way between now and November. When you talk about the polls, though, you know, I mean, yep. I'm sure you get this question a lot. You know, the polls have been inaccurate uh, for yep. the last couple of years. They were inaccurate yep. with Trump. They were inaccurate with, with um, Brexit. Uh, even with um, Ocasio-Cortez, I remember looking at the polls uh, – two, three weeks before the election, and she was, you know, I think it was like 35 points they said that she was going to lose by, and she ended up winning yep. by 12 in, in the Bronx. How can we, I mean, can you explain how the poll, has the polling changed since since the Trump, you know, mistakes, or is it still, yeah. is, is the polling done the same way, and can you explain how it's done? Uh, well, not in a way that wouldn't bore the crap out of most people uh, in a podcast. <laughs> um, uh, so... Um, uh, here are a couple of things I'm going to tell you. For, let, let, let's put the Crowley thing aside just for a second because that is a primary, and a primary is a very, very different um, thing um, to figure out. Um, uh, and we know that there was an absolutely massive change in turnout to what normal history um, uh, had behaved in that, in that district um, uh, and that she had motivated a ton of sort of uh, younger, young white voters to come out to vote in Queens in particular. Um, and so something unusual definitely happened there, and kudos to, to her for, for uh, being able to do that. So a prime, but a primary is a very, very different um, uh, environment. Let's just take the polls from um, this special election, just for example, because there were many of them, and they were all very public, and they all showed the race to be a dead heat. Democrat up by one, Republican up by one. Like, and in fact, some of the pollsters did multiple models to show if turnout is X, we think the Democrat will win by one. If turnout is Y, we think the Republican will win by one. You know, all those polls were right. Um, they were certainly, and, and certainly within the margin of error. Um, on the polls that I know in terms of what was happening in lots of other races around the country the other day, they seem to be pretty good. And so um, uh, I, obviously the Trump thing is, is one that, that hits the polling community in a, in a real way. Um, uh, and we have made some changes. We are doing a lot more multimodal um, polling, meaning that we're not just using telephone polling, cell phone, and, cell phone and landline, but we're using things like online polling. We're using text-to-web surveys. We're doing different kinds of things to try to reach a broader spectrum of people. So the polling industry certainly has looked at itself and said, We've got to make some changes to make sure um, that things are done in a better 
way so that we get more accurate data. Um, but if the results of um, the special election are any indication in terms of whether we can quote-unquote trust them, uh, the polls were pretty good. I have another question about the, uh, regarding the yeah. polls, but real quick. So when you do these polls, are you doing them every day? Are they, are, they, are they every week? Are you talking to people that are 18 to 65? Like wh- how, how yeah. do they work in kind of like a, a brief nutshell? So polls are meant to take a snapshot of voters during a given period of time. So it's almost never every day. It's usually, let's say, a candidate wants to do a poll. Um, you'll, do, um, you'll have a questionnaire. You'll get it ready. You'll go into the field, which means you'll start doing the calls. Let's just say you start that on a Sunday. You'll finish on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and you'll deliver the results on a Thursday. And so the poll is the snapshot in time of the days that you were calling people. And so one of the things that's important about a poll is, um, uh, is exactly that. It's a snapshot in time. And if something happens after that snapshot in time that theoretically could change things, well, you know, uh, polling is ephemeral. It's only useful for the time period that you had it. So you take that snapshot and then you make decisions, but other decisions and other things that are going to happen are going to change the dynamics of the race. Um, uh, and so even in that Crowley race, for example, that you're talking about, um, uh, if you look at what the poll said and what the pollster um, would say to a candidate in that situation, that pollster would happen to be me in that situation, um, you would say you would say to, your, uh, to an incumbent, for example, if an incumbent is at 50, for example, and the challenger, it doesn't matter that a challenger is at 15 or 10 or, 10 or zero. What matters is what the incumbent has. Because in any race against an incumbent, our rule of thumb for polling is if you're an incumbent that's at 55, you're probably going to get 55. If you're an incumbent at 45 the day before the election, you're in huge trouble. It doesn't matter if it's 45 to 10. The 35-point spread is irrelevant because the challenger is the person who gets the benefit of most of the undecideds. Why? Because if I'm undecided the day before the election – I know who the incumbent is in all probability. If I know one thing, I know who the incumbent is. So why am I going to vote for that incumbent the day, the next day? And so challengers usually get nine out of ten undecideds. We, our rule of thumb is nine out of ten undecideds break towards the challenger. Is it the undecideds that are – are they the ones that are really deciding every single one of these races? No, not every single one. In fact, there are some people who are decided and move. Um, some 20% um, uh, of voters are late movers, meaning that they were with somebody, they were with one candidate, and they move over to the other. We happen to know that that happened in the presidential campaign, um, uh, that there are plenty of people who were voting for either um, Hillary Clinton, and then they decided to vote third party. I don't think there are a lot of people who went from Hillary to Trump, but I'm sure there are some. Uh, and the same with Trump. There are people who voted for Trump who voted third party. And more importantly, there were people who were, said they were going to vote for the Libertarian or vote for, you know, vote for Gary Johnson, who at the end of the day said, forget it, I'm not wasting my vote, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to Trump. Um, so it's not only the undecided. There are persuadable voters um, uh, who even persuadable voters who say that they are voting for somebody. So it's incumbent upon us, and when we do polls, we try to figure out who the most persuadable voters are and then talk to them and communicate with them. There's a huge portion of the electorate that is decided. They're going to vote for whomever. I, you know, I voted for – I have never not voted for a Democrat. So, um, so I'm a decided voter. We know who I'm voting for. 
but there are um, uh, enough people in the middle who don't, uh, and they're the people who we target with all of our communications um, in a political campaign. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. When you look at the, uh, uh, the polls and you see the effects that Trump has when he tweets, when he does things like the, the vile immigration policy of separating children at the border, things like that, do, do, his, you know, do his actions, uh, do you see a direct result on polling and, and what people think, even you know, undecideds, Democrats, Republicans, whatever, do, does it change things or does it, is it, are people so stuck in where they are that nothing really changes anything? Well, on but on what now? On a policy thing or like what? So, like for example, when uh, um, I've always been very anti-Trump, I think that you know he's uh, a very bad person who is doing diabolical things to the country. But when the yeah. when the immigration thing took place, um, when we saw those families being separated and and the lack of of any remorse coming out of the White House. Uh, it was. It was. It, it made me go times ten. I mean, I I, li- I kind of wanted right. to quit my job and go run for office and <laughs> and you know uh, help people across the border. I mean, it was just. I just. It was unbelievable. And I was curious if you, when some of these massive things happen, you know, that was the thing that got me. And I'm sure that there are issues around guns or around uh, abortion or the Supreme Court of yeah. things that get each individual person. I mean, I know Bill Clinton always said there's one reason you go to the poll for one thing. When you were doing your polling, do you see? that Trump's actions are the thing that are changing uh, people's decisions? Um, and if so, kind of what are those big things that have changed them? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there is no other issue in the midterms um, uh, and there is no other issue in politics today um, other than Donald Trump. He is the central <laughs> issue of everything. Even if he's not being talked about, he is the central issue of everything that's being talked about. And he is the motivator on both sides for people um, uh, he certainly has motivated the entire Republican Party seemingly to abandon many of their prin- many of their long term principles on things like trade. Um, the party, the Republican Party, doesn't exist. It's a party of Trump. Um, uh, that's very sad to me um, uh, and dispiriting. But you know, to your direct question, yes, there are things that he does that cause people to be animated on both sides. You know, when he does stuff on immigration and when he says things on immigration at those rallies, he's talking to a portion of the base that he knows is faithful to him um, and don't want him to uh, sell out in any way, shape or form. I mean, these are people who he promised that he would build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. I'm pretty sure we're paying for it. I looked at the budget requisitions. I've seen what people are voting for. So um, these are people who will look past everything that he lies, tweets, um, uh, uh, does, um, and they are motivated to be with him and help him. And for the people, the squishy Republicans, um, who decide that they want to be independent of Trump, they do so at their own peril because he'll figure out how to get in a Republican primary and primary you and get your ass voted out. You know, Jeff Flake has essentially been run out of his own party in Arizona. Um, uh, uh, I looked at numbers and I saw numbers in a Republican primary. Jeff Flake was like, um, uh, more, uh, despised than like some Democrats. 
Um, so wow. this is a guy who can who can turn um, uh, powerful swaths of Republican primary voters who are very important if you want to stay reelected uh, against people. Um, and so they 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 buck him at their own peril. Now on on the other side, immigration is the thing that has gotten Democrats more animated than almost anything. The child separation in particular is the thing that permeates down to regular voters who see this and say, you know, I, even if I like want us to be a little tougher on immigration, there's nothing about this that feels um, American to me. The other thing that motivates people is nervousness about foreign policy, it, like things like Helsinki and, and how he acted and what he said. That gets people motivated. Does it get them motivated to the polls? I don't know. We'll, we'll see in November what people are motivated by. Right now, all of this data shows Democrats way more motivated to vote than Republicans. And that in itself is an unusual phenomenon for the midterms. So in that way, Donald Trump may very well be the best thing to ever happen to the Democratic Party in terms of trying to win back power in all of these places because it has been a motivating factor. Okay, so let's look at um, – I want to go to Texas for a minute uh, and look at the Beto O'Rourke campaign um, sure. against Ted Cruz. And one of the things that's so interesting is it, it's – I think for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of – it's one of the closest things to maybe the Ocasio-Cortez uh, voting where you have someone who is going out and reaching out to people that we didn't necessarily – uh, reach out to before. Um, you know, Beto O'Rourke has traveled to every single district in, in Texas. Uh, he is, uh, he's so careful not to be negative. Um, he, uh, he has a, a, he's, a policies I completely agree with 1000%. He's raising millions of dollars. He's not using yeah. super PACs. Like, he is what I imagine and hope that the future of the Democratic Party is. And when you look at the polls, and this is an astounding number just for Texas, but he's he's behind, you know, five, six, seven points in the polls on average. Yep. Is there mm -hmm. a chance that when you that because he's traveling to these districts that maybe pollsters don't normally talk to, that he could actually be ahead in the polls, and we well, just, just don't just know hold that. Hold on, there's no such thing as a district pollsters don't talk to. That that's 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 a that is a not that's that's false, right? So okay. when we talk to voters in Texas, for example, we talk to a broad cross section of voters, which would include theoretically every voter in Texas has an equal opportunity um, to get called. So even if you live in the most remote place in Texas, if that remote place in Texas represents uh, two percent of the pop of the voting population, two percent of the poll is going to come from from that area. So I just want to make sure, from a factual perspective, that we get that there isn't something. Now, that doesn't mean that candidates haven't gone to those places and talked to them, but from a polling perspective, we talk to everybody who we think is likely to vote. The only thing that we don't do sometimes is talk to people who we don't think are likely to vote. And that's more of what you're, I think, what you're talking about, which is people yeah, that's who, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Right, who are motivated to vote. Well, pollsters are doing that. Like, we are looking much more at models that allow us to look at, um, okay, well, we know there's this group of voters who, like, religiously vote in midterms. They're probably going to vote, we know. But how about the ones who are less likely? And so we are sampling a broader universe of people to talk to. Now, I can't speak to what the public polls are doing, but the private pollsters, the people who are working on the campaign, are doing that. So I'm sure Beto is doing that for a good reason. He's running an incredible campaign. He's... Um, 
doing a great job raising money. He's certainly um, interesting, intriguing. Uh, Texas is a hard state. The only way to win Texas is to get um, Latinos who, who have uh, classically undervoted um, meaning, um, if I'm, I'm making up the numbers, but just uh, for an example, if Latinos represent 20% of the population, um, they've been voting at 10%. That's undervoting. So, right, so they, they, they have undervoted their population. So, Beto is certainly talking to um, uh, Latinos, young people, to, to try to get them to vote more like what the population number should be. And if he does that, that's the way. Uh, that he can make the campaign happen. To be clear, that's really, really hard. <laughs> and so the notion that why, everybody why in this so country hard? can do it, because getting people who don't vote to care about voting is a really hard thing to do. Um, <laughs> there have been people who've been trying to do it for years and years and years, um, but there are people who are um, free riders on the, on the uh, economically free riders on in terms of voting that they are passive, that they don't feel that their vote matters. Um, but lots even and lots with, of candidates e across this country have tried to do it, and it's hard. Even with Donald Trump in office, they still don't feel like their vote matters? N that's correct. I sit in focus groups where people say it to me all the time. They're angry, they're frustrated, um, but uh, I'm still just not convinced that my vote matters. Um, and convincing of that, it, convincing them of that is a really, really hard thing. And so again, I, I think Beto is doing what he has to do which is to try to get those people um, motivated to vote. And if he does, that's how the race gets closer. If he doesn't, Texas is structurally very, very hard to, to win. So he's doing not only what you like, but he's also doing actually what he has to do in order to win. So when you look at the, the 2016, uh, speaking of the people that don't vote, it, it was around yep. 91 million eligible voters who didn't show up at the polls. Uh, uh -huh. Is, is there a world in which, if we fast forward to 2020, that number changes because of Trump? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I think that there is a possibility that it changes. I just wouldn't bet on it. And all the people who, um, uh, who, who like you and I, who look at the news every day and are frustrated and, and want to go out and, and, and sort of raise holy hell, um, we just have to understand that many of those voters who are the non-voters don't feel the same way we do, um, and that talking to them and spending money to um, uh, to try to get them to vote is going to be an important part of whoever the Democratic presidential candidate is. We know that of the non-voters that Hillary killed um, with that, meaning if they had come out to vote, um, uh, there, there are um, uh, voters that we know voted in, they voted in uh, 2012, but didn't vote in 2016. Among the group of voters across the country in swing states, people who voted in 12, but did, so I'm not talking about getting non-voters, but people who voted in 12 and didn't vote in 16, Hillary would have gotten approximately two-thirds of those people um, uh, when we look at sort of history and models. And, and so, you know, that's just one group of people um, that hopefully are motivated enough to vote in 2020 to try to get this asshole out of office. <laughs> um, all right, so let's talk about 2020 uh, for a minute here. Uh, when you kind of, uh, I, one of the things I tend to do, which is probably the worst thing I probably could do for my for my health, is um, yeah. I tend to try to look at the. Um, I go to the 538 page of Trump's approval rating, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, when I look today, it's 41.7% approved, 52.5% disapprove. Um, yeah. it's, it, it seems, you know, th- that famous quote, he said that he could walk out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and, and people would still vote for him. It, yeah. he, I mean, he literally can do anything and they won't change their tune. It, <clears throat> first of all, one thing I've been hearing out of people in Washington that is that some people theorize that he may not run in 2020. Um, I don't that's, actually believe that, that's, that's true. Bullshit. I'm curious what you think. That, that, that is Washington bullshit. Of, that is classic <laughs> Washington bullshit. Nope, nobody walks out of that office without being taken out in a box. <laughs> Especially Donald Trump. And so correct. what do you think happens in 2020? First of all, I guess the question is, and I know you can't predict these things, but who do you think may be on that stage that's going to be up against him, A? Uh, B, do you think that there's a world in which peop- that 41% who you know would support him through thick and thin, if, that, if something happens that would make it drop to 39% or whatever it is, no. um, can you kind of give us a lay of the land of what you think 2020 looks like? Well, let's also remind people that the 42 is still historically bad, right? So um, uh, 42% presidential job approval is historically very, very bad, um, uh, which is one of the reasons why we are optimistic about the midterms, right? The, the midterms reflect um, uh, in a lot of ways how people are feeling. So uh, even though that number is stuck in that low 40s, that's not a good place for him to be electorally speaking. Now, do I think that that number is going south of, of, of you know, 40, 41, 42? No. Um, I do think he could stand in Fifth Avenue and, and shoot somebody, and, and that number is not going to change. Of course, some people would argue he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and those numbers would go up, which is more tragic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I think he's got um, a structural 42% of the vote that approve and are with him and are going to be with him no matter what. And, um, uh, and so... Uh, the question is, can he get the next 6-7% of the vote in order to win? That's where the independents come into play um, and where I actually think he has a problem today. His numbers among independents are relatively weak. The independent voters are the ones who are going to decide this midterm in all probability as the independents swing towards the Democrat um, in the midterms. That makes me feel better about 2020 in terms of where uh, those voters are heading. And again, that makes it harder for Trump to get past um, uh, uh, to get to the 48-ish percent uh, that he needs uh, in order to, to win the election. Um, I say 48 because there will be third, fourth, uh, fifth party candidates, uh, and therefore uh, he probably doesn't need to get to 50 to win. Um, who the Democrat is, I- I'm not going to pine on that. There's um, a- any number of, of folks who can. The Democrats are, of course, uh, we're in our own chaos where we are trying to figure out um, what our party stands for and who we are. And, and, um, uh, and even that battle, that battle is raging as we go through these, these primaries. Um, the Bernie wing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's yeah. taking place in California where I live. I mean, you, you, you know, the California Democrats endorsed, uh, um, Leon for U S Senate and, uh, and not Feinstein. And I, and I'm like, well, who am I supposed to vote for? I just want to make sure I vote for the person who beats the Republican. Like, Right. So it's 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 is that going to you know well you, is that going to kind of state is calm down weird right your your state is particularly yeah. weird just in terms of the top two 
um, top two candidates, and therefore, you know, either Democrat is, is, is for uh, is is obviously going. Well, there's a Democrat going to the Senate from California, um, uh, but um, on but in terms of these primaries, I mean, again, yesterday or two days, the, there were primaries in Michigan and in Kansas and um, uh, and in Washington State. Um, and the reality is, is that kind of the, the, the and, and there have been primaries all year. And by and large, in most cases, sort of the, the, there's been a lot of energy, a lot of women, fantastic number of women, fantastic number of, of people of color uh, who have won primaries. And so I think there is real energy behind these folks. Um, the question of sort of which wing of the Democrats, is it the Bernie wing, the socialist wing, and those are not even necessarily the same thing anymore, um, uh, or is it sort of the more... Uh, establishment wing of the Democratic Party, we're going to see that the establishment side has actually done pretty well um, uh, in terms of getting the candidate who they have wanted in most of these primaries in terms of um, uh, taking on uh, the Republican in November. Not all, but uh, but many times. And so the battle over who the Democrat, what flavor of Democrat is going to be on that stage in the presidential is going to rage for the next two years, but is going to be heavily influenced by whatever happens this November, which makes the discussion of 2020 and who the Democrat is going to be even more difficult until we get past the midterms. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Finding the right fragrance is kind of like falling in love. I know, Nick. There's that initial whiff of attraction. And then you know what happens, John? Time goes on and you discover all these additional layers that you didn't realize were there about you and me. But finding the perfect perfume and finding out what's inside, it's not always so wonderful, Nick. You know, this is actually true. And that's why our sponsor this week is called Fleur. It's P-H-L-U-R. And it actually sounds like Fleur. And they are... One of those companies that is transparent about the stuff that you get. I don't know if you know this, actually, John. The stuff you get in perfume is really gross stuff. There's like plastics and chemicals, and people are putting this on their skin. Fleur is not actually doing that. Fleur is the best. Instead of testing a scent on a strip of paper or worse, being ambushed in a busy department store, you can get to know each of Fleur's scents with pictures, words, and music on their site. If you like what you hear and see, Nick, odds are you'll like the scent. Oh, it's true. I actually tried it out myself. I got some for myself. I got some for my wife. And the pictures lined up exactly with what I wanted. Each Fleur scent is created by the world-class perfumers that work there. And they're inspired by real moments for your real life, not some silly idea that a celebrity like Kim Kardashian, who no one likes, or a clothing company has decided you will like yourself. And because all that matters is what you like, scents are gender-free. I'm not going to touch that one. You're not going to touch that one? Okay, well, yeah. it's true. They are gender-free. So listen, there's a call to action here. If you go to Fleur.com, that's P-H-L-U-R.com today, and use the promo code HIVE, that's H-I-V-E, you can get 20% off your custom Fleur sample set. Pick three cents to try and get credit towards a full-size bottle of your favorite. That's the promo code HIVE, H-I-V-E, at Fleur.com to try three fragrances of your choice and get 20% off where do I go, John? Um. Oh, boy. I don't know. Are you going to go to Fleur.com? Are, are you going to go where I am right now literally buying massive amounts of perfume and fragrance? Fleur.com. P-H-L-U-R.com. Fleur.com. So 
one other question in regard to the 2020 campaign, and I guess also with 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 the midterms, is um, is the Green Party and you know Libertarian Party, all these other parties that where people that would normally vote for the Democrats, are they yep. hurting this country more than than anything else? Oh, I mean, I, I believe so. Well, I mean, for sure, on the green side, I, I can't claim that all third parties are bad because the libertarian candidates actually tend to help the Democratic candidate more than hurt, not uniformly. Uh, but when we look at most of the data, um, uh, there are some young folks who vote libertarian, um, but uh, who might have voted Democratic. But there are lots of times where a libertarian is pulling off um, uh, people who are uncomfortable voting for the Republican, but can't stomach voting for a Democrat, and so they vote Libertarian. The Greens, you know, we, we it, it didn't end up that way in this Ohio race, but it was damn close. I think the Green Party candidate got like seven, eight hundred votes. Um, it was uh, uh, eleven, I think eleven hundred actually at the end of the day. Oh, eleven hundred. Okay, which is, so not quite but enough. Still four hundred uh, shy. Yeah, four hundred shy. So yes, the Green Party candidate, I mean, take a, a, a situation like that, absolutely a disaster. And in many of these places, um, those candidates are a ploy, they're a plot. They've been planted there by the opposition party because they know that it is helpful. So um, all I can do is rail against it and try what I can to make sure there is no green candidate in most of my places because most of my, or all of my candidates are green. And so to me, it's a comical waste of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of everything. But yes, the Green Party candidate could easily screw us and certainly um, uh, was part of screwing us in the presidential. Not enough. Again, not enough to lose, but partially. Not enough, yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about some of the connect. Can we talk a little bit about some of the issues that voters are kind of really focused sure. on right now and, and what's yep. having an effect? Does, do voters care about Russia? No, they don't. Um, uh, they, they, they might care at some point if there's a, uh, an indictment at, a, at such a high level that it will start to make people care. But by and large, um, the, the investigation is something that passes um, through the voters' minds. Um, uh, we did a survey uh, a month ago and asked people, um, they think the investigation should continue, but we asked people nationally, um, uh, have any people been convicted of crimes in the Mueller investigation? And only 40% of all voters said yes. So 60% of the voters didn't even think anybody had been convicted of a crime yet. Um, so hmm. hard to care if you don't think there's been criminal activity, right? Um, yeah. and, uh, and so, no, they don't care about it. Here's what they do care about. They care about health care. Um, and in particular, the repeals that the Republicans tried to put in place. They care about the fact that there are attorneys general across this country, Republican attorneys general, who have sued to call the coverage of pre-existing conditions um, unconstitutional. Um, that's something that they care about. They care about the fact that, they, that we could go back to a time where pre-existing conditions could be denied, or they care about the fact that the Republican health care plans were going to allow old people, um, seniors, to be charged uh, five times more. Um, so there are any number of things about health care that piss people off um, and are relevant for almost every Democratic candidate in this country. Um, the second thing uh, that is relevant not to everybody um, but to many is the Republican tax plan and what it represents um, and the fact that um, even though people are feeling okay economically, meaning that people think the economy has gone okay, um, it's not as if they think that the tax cut has given them any great, um, uh, great benefit. And more important, even if they got some tax, cut, uh, some tax cut in their paycheck, 
their healthcare premiums have gone up by way more than whatever small amount of money they got in their paycheck. Um, and so that's concerning to them. We even have conservative voters in, in or, um, moderate voters in suburban districts who care about the fact that the Republican tax plan has increased the deficit in an irresponsible and completely un-Republican um, uh, remember I said the Republican Party that's abandoned their ideals, the notion of the Republican Party being the one that's sort of increasing the debt um, uh, is, is, is an abomination to some of these voters. Um, you have guns that is a motivating issue and now a persuasive issue. There are plenty of people uh, across this country and districts who are saying it's enough, it's time to do something um, uh, about things. Um, and then finally, it's the economy, and that's the one place where Trump has a small advantage, um, because as I said, people think the economy's going okay, um, and they are willing to potentially give him some of the benefit of the doubt for that economy. That may be false in terms of the, the truth. They were not willing to give it to Barack Obama, uh, even though the economy was going well under Obama, but because Donald Trump, the brilliant businessman that he is, which of course we know is, is horseshit as well, um, <laughs> but because that's his perception... Um, uh, the voters are more willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on that. So that's the one thing that he's got um, uh, that could be a detriment to the Democrats winning in some of these places is that feeling that the economy is going well, and therefore, why would we change? And the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court is never a motivating issue for, um, uh, for persuadable voters. It's a base issue on both sides. Um, so both sides will, will try to use it to motivate their base, but it is not a in-the-middle um, persuadable argument by and large. When you look at the, the results of this, these midterms, let's just say that they, you know, the House does flip. It could actually end up being leading to the demise of Trump's agenda completely, sure. right? I mean, the, the, it, 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 everything is on the line for him in this race. Is that right? Yes. Oh, there's no question so, about it. And it's certainly if the Democrats take back the House, I don't even want to think about what November and December the lame duck session of Congress is going to look like. Every crazy ass thing that anybody wants is going to try to be passed in a 60 day sprint. Well, uh, until the until the changeover takes place. What yeah, do you think exactly. that um, do, do you think that when you kind of look at these numbers um, that when the, the when the house does flip let's just pretend it does flip uh that it could end up leading is there a world in which it could end up leading to impeachment of trump or is it just a pie in the sky kind of uh, you know dream by uh you know democrats that that could ever happen well it's not it it, it it's not my dream necessarily let me be clear um i'm not yeah. certain that impeachment would be um would be uh, a a very good thing um uh i, I as because i said of before Pence. Well, A, I, you know, Mike Pence is a, I mean, he's despicable from a policy perspective, in my opinion, but he's certainly a more sane human being who's sane in terms of dealing with Congress, who I think might have an easier time getting some things through. And so I, I have yeah. no, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm also not interested because uh, the impeachment may very well, uh, if you take down Donald Trump, I just told you, we may win the midterms because of Donald Trump. Um, and so he's the motivating factor. Uh, do I want him in office? Of course not. I, I despise him. It's, it, everything about him is, is, uh, is, is, is disgraceful to me that, that he's the president and embarrassing us. But um, there are any number of Democrats like me, particularly political professionals, who want nothing to do with impeachment. Now, what I do think is that doesn't mean that 
it may not happen. It, the process may it may very well happen. Um, but I think what you're really going to see is heavy investigations, uh, much more, and sort of a, a, a make him miserable. Um, I think is a more likely scenario for the next two years um, uh, than impeachment. That, of course, is all assuming the Mueller um, uh, uh, Mueller doesn't. Uh, indict him, and that's a totally different story. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about a situation like that because obviously, if he does, then impeachment is a almost a foregone conclusion. Um, but aside from that, but, I don't think it is a foregone conclusion at all. But the Republicans would never. I mean, is there are there any even if he gets indicted, there are, are there any Republicans that would support him? I mean, in in '74 no. when. Nixon was impeached in 76, which was the, the equivalent to the midterms back then. They lost, I think it was 56 seats or something like that. It, sure. It's, it's not that there's – so there's not a really a world in which it would ever happen even with an indictment. Oh, meaning under Republican control? No, I meant if the Democrats take it back. Under Republican control, there is, there is no scenario under which it happens. Yeah. Right, um, but if the Democrats okay, last... take control, I, st- I still don't think that it is like the most likely scenario outside of an indictment uh, of the president. An indictment of the president will that then then I think it would happen. Outside of that, I'm just not convinced that that impeachment is going to impeachment is certainly not the number one thing that people want to do. Um, uh, when I talk to voters, but, the, but if they do, to, yeah, if they do win, some of the things they could do is I mean, they, they have, the House would have complete subpoena power. They could. We could see his tax returns, right? There's things yeah. that we could see that you would never have been able to, to do under Republican Congress. That's what I mean by heavy investigations. That's what I think happens. The Democrats take back the yeah. House, and it's not impeachment that is the first thing, that is the big thing that happens for two years. It's investigations. It's subpoena. It's all the things, frankly, that Daryl Issa, another piece of crap who I look forward to being out of Congress after this cycle, um, uh, uh, who, who, who quit because he was going to lose anyway, um, uh, he has done it so masterfully to Democrats, um, their turnabout is going to be very fair play. So that's what I mean if the Democrats take back the House, heavy investigations. All right, so last couple of questions. Uh, one is a very brief question about polling that I meant to ask earlier. Yep. The, um, when you do the polling, you're calling people, right? When I get a yep. call from a number I don't recognize, I don't answer the phone. And I'm sure yep. that most people my age and younger feel that way. How, how do you get about that when you're polling um, you know, 18 to 30 or whatever it is, that, that, that yeah. group? So, um, so again, there are multiple ways that we're now doing, uh, doing polls, um, not only using phones, but we're using uh, internet polling, we're using web panels, we're using um, uh, text web where we're texting people, um, uh, and then they get pushed to a web survey to do stuff. So we are trying to use multiple modes of talking to people. Um, you would be surprised. Um, you, 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 Nick, are a very uh, cosmopolitan man who spent your time on the two great coasts of, of America. Uh, and so you may know to not pick up that phone number of the number you don't know. Uh, that's not the case for a lot of people across this country. Um, uh, hmm. And so um, uh, we certainly get to talk to plenty of young folks these days, uh, and we know that we need to talk, talk to more of them. So, frankly, we spend more of our time thinking about how we do it and how we talk to them. The market research industry goes through changes all the time. Um, Fifty years ago, it was uh, door-to-door used to be the, uh, the, the main thing, and then telephones came in, and they said it's all over, and they figured out how to make telephone survey research work. 
And so we're just on whatever the next iteration of figuring out. Uh, Americans have been, well, consumers have been researched for years and years, uh, going back to our, the earliest days. And so that's not going to stop. We just have to figure out new ways to do it and make sure that we are talking to as many people who are reflective of your opinions uh, and younger voters' opinions as we can. When you look at the, uh, the the 2016 election, we saw there was a massive influence of Russia, and yeah. um, and I've written about uh, things that Russia has been planning on 2018, 2020, and it's everything from fake news to you know to even potentially hacking into some of the voter booths and things like that. Yep. Could those things you know have an outcome on 2018 and 2020? Well, I think so. I mean, look, I know that there are lots of people who are nervous about it. We on the campaign side are all far more um, uh, careful about using encrypted email and things of that nature uh, to have our communications to try to uh, keep things private. But the Trump administration has done nothing to uh, make sure uh, that our elections are not interfered with uh, at a state level, um, and they have um, uh, purposely underfunded it. And so if you ask me, um, uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, um, but am I nervous about all the impacts that outside forces can have on, on things like this election? I'm incredibly nervous about it. Uh, and um, it's going to be up to the states to try to do their best to defend all right, so final question. I know you can't predict this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. If you had to predict today based on your polling and, and everything, uh, who the Democratic nominee would be in 2020 and if they would beat Trump, who do you think, how do you think it plays out? So I work for a number of those people who are on your list, which is why I'll politely decline your, <laughs> your question and say I don't give a rat's ass about 2020 until I get past 2018. And for all of my friends on the left who are spending their time worrying about what 2020 is, I want to remind them that the trees are ahead of us. And let's not look at the forest. The trees are the 2018 midterm. Let's go knock on some doors. Let's go make sure that we win as many of these seats as possible. Um, uh, let's try to win the Senate for Chuck Schumer. Um, uh, and then we'll worry 2020 will so sort itself out uh, after that. And do you and and do you? Uh, this is my final final question. So just hearing you saying the knock on the doors, does that help? Like if, if you know, yeah. I know people that are like, what do I what do I do to help with the twenty eighteen midterms? I can only yeah. donate so much money, or I only have so much money to donate. What are the things that they can do to to really try to help these candidates? Yeah, donate, knock on doors, volunteer. Like all these things actually do help. We know that human contact. Uh, on a campaign level is still one of the most persuasive things that we can do. And so giving your time uh, to a campaign, they will figure out uh, a way to use you. And by the way, that means remotely. Like we have all sorts of technology that allow us uh, to make you know, phone calls to help campaigns, even if we don't live near them. So if you care about Beto O'Rourke, get in touch with Beto O'Rourke's campaign. And I know that they will figure out a way to use you even from uh, from your cell phone uh, in a way that is that 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 isn't strange to the voters. Um, we have technology to allow it to uh, allow you to call into voters um, uh, and have them um, 
uh, and then update the, the voter file so that you can help the campaign and tell them, oh, this is an undecided voter. You should spend time talking to them. Well, that's hugely important and hugely uh, influential in the race, and that campaign is going to then spend time talking to those undecided voters, uh, uh, or they'll talk to voters who say, yeah, I'm voting for Beto, but I'm not really sure I'm going to vote. Well, you know, that's hugely important to the campaign. So go do that. Money does help, by the way. Even the $5, $10, $100, all those things, um, uh, those, are, those are really, really helpful to every campaign. And so we should never dismiss that. Uh, but your time is, is absolutely essential. So get out there and do something, would you? All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. This has been fascinating. And uh, maybe we'll have you back on uh, after the midterms and see what happened. Fingers Sounds crossed. Good. <laughs> Appreciate right, it. Thank you so much. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, John Kelly, are you there? I'm here, Nick. Is it true I heard a rumor on Slack this week that you've been having a really hard time getting sleep? I've been having a hard time getting sleep. Well, you're in luck because our sponsor this week, Mattress Firm, wants to help you. Oh, my God. Thank God. So Mattress Firm is here when you're looking to improve your sleep. The people that work at Mattress Firm are mattress experts. They are not just experts on mattresses, but on beds, headboards, adjustable bases, sheets. And I also heard from your wife, we were talking the other day, that you're looking for new bedroom decor. They can do that too. Hallelujah. Bedroom decor. It's what I'm shopping for right now. Um, okay. So we'll pay attention. Don't, don't, don't finish up yet because... They are literally going to not – they have you covered figuratively and literally. They are going to give you a discount, uh, you and all the listeners. You can get 10% off that bedroom decor and that mattress that you're going to buy today with the code PODCAST10. All you have to do is go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast. That's mattressfirm.com slash podcast and type in the code PODCAST10. I told you how to spell podcast. And you can get 10% off. They're also going to offer you – and the other people listening, a 120-night sleep trial, so you can rest assured that you're getting the uh, the best mattress for your money. Uh, and they're also going to say a 120-night price guarantee. So if you decide and you find the same mattress cheaper somewhere, they will honor that price. Well, thank God. That's exactly what I wanted. I'm going to go right now and enter Podcast 10. Okay, so it's mattressfirm.com slash podcast. The code is podcast10. You get 10% off. And if you decide you want to actually go into the store, they have 3,000 stores nationwide um, and probably one right in your backyard. uh, And uh, you can get that 10% savings in person. Uh, Lastly, mattressfirm.com slash podcast and start sleeping better tonight. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I have a very special second guest today, the one, the only... The only person who would actually agree to do this with me, John Kelly. John? Nick, if you introduce me like that every single time, boy, you know how to talk to all the girls. Well, the reason that you are actually here this week and you haven't been for the last few weeks is because I was at dinner the other night and someone was saying, a group of people were saying how much they love Inside the Hive. They were not paid actors, unlike the people who Trump put in his, uh, when he announced he was running for president. And... um, and they were like, but we missed the, that guy, John Kelly. And I was like, you like listening to John Kelly and me bullshit for, for 10 minutes? And they were like, we fucking love it. So that's why you're here, John. Well, you know, that's the essence of the medium. I feel like this sort of, you know, uh, uh, chatty, uh, conversational, familiar thing we have going, Nick, it's really priceless. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're having me back on. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. So let's jump to it. Uh, I think you want to talk about uh, two people in the technology world that are 
bizarre human beings this week. Yeah. Actually, I, I, want, I, I want to talk about um, Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey, as you suggest, but I also want to do an Evan Spiegel bonus round at the end because I want to know what you think of um, these very jejun snap numbers. Actually, they're probably, uh, they're probably scary. Um, and I want to know in particular if you think Snap is going to have to look uh, for an acquirer in its near to midterm future. But before we even get there, I'm going to take over, Nick, and, and ask you the questions now. Tell me, what is going to happen mm. to Tesla? Is it going to go private? And did Elon Musk break any SEC rules? And is it going private the best thing that could ever happen to the company? Well, going private would be the best thing that could ever happen to Elon Musk because then he could tweet to his heart's content and no one would ever give him a hard time about it. Or, well, they would, but there's nothing they could do. Um, it was interesting. So I was working on a column about Silicon Valley and Alex Jones and Steve Jobs and all these people and Elon Musk um, and this week. And my phone started ringing from people and they were like, did you just fucking see what Elon Musk did? And I was like, no, what did Elon Musk do? And because I don't try to check Twitter very often anymore. And so I went, of course, I didn't even have to ask where he did it. I went to Twitter and I saw that he had just tweeted about uh, possibly potentially taking the company uh, private at 420 a share at the time I believe the the share price was around 340 or something like that and of course the stock had shot up it was at that point it was only a few minutes later and um, uh, and it was already up uh, you know uh, 20 points and by the end of the day it was up even more and and the question everyone was saying to me is like did he, he just totally broke the law like that is completely illegal if he has if he is not definitively planning on taking that company public if he has not told his shareholders beforehand and and so on um, he has literally broken the law by uh, forcing the share price and so on and, and immediately there were slews of articles that came out saying that um, now of course the stock has fallen right back to about where it started after the SEC says it is looking into whether he did I, I think that the problem here is not necessarily if Tesla is going to be a private or public company. I think the problem is that this is another example of the CEO just being above everything that he wants to be above and doing whatever the hell he wants, and there will not be any repercussions. I do not foresee him you know, having to deal with the SEC on this uh, in a very severe way. And I think that that is the more disheartening part of this whole story. The, um, the Tesla board include some pretty reputable people or uh james murdoch for one they seem pretty energized by this uh, in part i'm sure because they, they don't want to um they don't want to deal with, with the the headaches of having a ceo who who likes to you know to play a game of chicken with the media do you do you buy that um that there's real support among the board to to make this move because it's a it's a considerable thing to do even if they have the actual cash to do it I think that that um, I was talking to a, a mutual friend of mine who is friends with Elon Musk, and I was asking like you know about the behind the scenes stuff that's been going on. Is like does he care, you know, about the way he's being perceived and and so on? And the friend said that uh, Musk constantly complains about the fact that he took Tesla public, uh, and mm. there's a reason that he hasn't taken SpaceX public and. Um, and that he because of the scrutiny regrets it. or because of the because of the scrutiny because he thinks that he you know Musk believes that um, once you're a public company that you uh, that you have to deal with all the scrutiny that comes along with it and probably all the rules too like the 
you know, th- that come along with that. And he was saying that, um, you know, I remember when I, I first spoke to Evan Spiegel and he was telling me um, uh, years after I'd written this first article on him and, and I'd, I'd seen him a while, uh, you know, a few, a few years later. And he'd said that, you know, Bloomberg had always told him not to go public. And Bloomberg has told a number of people that. Right. Um, uh, because he said that once you go public, you're kind of at the whims of the markets and, and the markets don't necessarily make sense a lot of the times and investors and and, and analysts don't know what they're talking about. And... Um, uh, and you know, if you want to innovate and you really truly want to innovate, don't go public. And I think that, um, uh, you know, Evan tried to hold off as long as he could and, and, and so did other companies. And I think that, um, uh, uh, th- that's the same thing is true for Uber who, uh, Bloomberg gave him the same, uh, the same advice to Travis Kalanick that, uh, don't go public. And I think that, um, uh, but there's no way that, the Uber board is going to let uh, Dara not. Well, then I think that that was one of the reasons that they pushed Travis out because he didn't want to give up that power and control. And I think that for for Elon Musk, it's the same thing. I think he wants to be able to tweet about candy bars and and you know maybe make a a non pro a a, a, a a Tesla you know three wheeled tricycle that that no one wants with the flamethrower on it and and he doesn't want the stock to drop as a result. And so for him, it's much more. Uh, probably a control thing and an innovation thing. Uh, and I think that um, while it would be incredibly difficult and cumbersome and uh, and so on, I, I can definitely see him trying to push it through. If he doesn't, I mean, at this point, I think he should just so he doesn't get in trouble with the SEC. If he doesn't, I really, I think he's going to have some lawsuits on his hands, especially from the short investors out there. And there's a lot of them. Interesting. Well, let, let, let's um, go to Spiegel first, since you mentioned just a, a moment ago. Earlier this week, we found out that that Snap had a very disappointing um, second quarter. There, I guess, did did daily users drop by a million? Is that right? Yeah, by, by three million. That's right. So they 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 lost three million daily active users in the second quarter. Um, it was the first time since the company went public that that happened. That yeah, they and they expect users. and and, they're, and usually the second quarter is pretty good. They they expect that to go down in the third quarter, probably because people go to school again, like because their users like are going back to to middle school or something. Um, I'm kind of not joking. And th- this was the first moment when I thought. Um, because I mean, I, the people I talked to in Silicon Valley, and of course, you're you're an infinitely better source there than I am. But very, very smart people express serious trepidation about this company and the way it's being managed. And I just wonder, Nick Bilton, who can see into the future, Nostradamus style, do you think Snap is going to look for some sort of strategic exit? Uh, well, let me answer this in two different ways. First of all. There's two ways of looking at the snap numbers. The first way of looking at the snap numbers is that snap sucks, kids are over it, sayonara, right? However, if you look at the snap numbers in aggregate, uh, snap lost 3 million users, daily active users. Uh, Facebook um, uh, was flat um, and actually has lost users in Europe. This is the first time Facebook's ever been flat. Uh, Twitter has lost um, uh, a million active users. Um, and the – are we getting an email right now or something? Sorry, yeah, yeah. That's uh, Bill Cohan calling. Uh, uh, hi, Bill. So uh, Twitter has lost um, uh, a million active users. And Twitter can bullshit all its wants and say it was because of its purge of the bots. No, it's because of the people not using it. 
And so the larger theme here is the fact that these companies are um, are losing users across the board and social. And I think that, and I, I said this a year ago, I think when we first started this podcast, that that I believed that we were going to get to a point where people were going to get fatigued from these things. These products are... The, the algorithms are trying to get us to use them more and more and more so that the numbers look better and better for Wall Street. And if we're losing against the algorithms, we just aren't going to play the game. And that's what's happening. You're seeing more and more people anecdotally originally and now in the data vision that are leaving the platforms. And I think it's going to continue on this trend unless these platforms change. And for Snap, the big problem is, as you said, every single person I talk to says to me when you mention Snap, anyone who's worked there, anyone who knows someone who's worked there, anyone who, like even people that use the platform, they think that the company is completely and utterly screwed uh, unless they do something large and, and big and innovative or something. And the 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 response to that often is, well, what could they do? The response is that a lot of people don't believe that uh, Evan Spiegel has the drive to, to save this company. He, you know, he's already worth billions he, you know, he. It's a lot. It's going to be a lot for him to to fight someone like Mark Zuckerberg and Kevin Systrom and and others. And uh, and I don't know if he has that drive. I just don't know if he has it in him. One other um, sort of corollary point is like these companies don't have to get bigger. They're already massive. Um, but you know, one thing yep. that you would hear with with the the you know the the sort of hallmark companies in the last couple of generations of Silicon Valley, like Google and and Facebook is that they would just figure out how to monetize them, right? It, it, it would all get figured out. And those two companies sure did figure out how to monetize through ads and scale. Why is Snap not as successful at monetizing through ads and scale? Because it certainly is in, it's in the hundreds of millions uh, in terms of daily active users. Um, you'd think that there'd be a meaningful business there that you wouldn't even have to, to uh, mess with all that much. Is it I that the that, audience is I less valuable? That- I think that no, it's not that the audience is less valuable. I think that um, I, I remember. I, so I worked in advertising many, many years ago, a couple of decades ago, and I remember sitting in the media buy meetings and and with these media buyers, and they are the ones that you know they sit across from Coca Cola and they're like, "Hey, uh, we think that you should put a hundred million dollars to to you know in print ads this month and uh, in magazines and ten million in commercials and this that and the, and they go through the thing." And I remember like asking one point like how do you come up with these numbers and they're like we just fucking make them up and like you know they just do this i mean there's sure there's some like algorithm in there that they like some spreadsheets and shit but like for the most part it's like the thing that they're interested in and 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 i think that that when it comes to tech it's like the it's the same thing these media buyers there there's data to show what's going on but like somebody was telling me this week that um, they have a movie coming out uh, on netflix and Netflix was telling them that they're going to put up some uh, uh, some billboards. Uh, and they said, but, you know, the billboards don't really do anything. We just put them up to make the filmmakers feel good. Uh, they don't actually drive any, any traffic. And I, and, it's, and I think that, like, I think that a lot of this stuff is kind of throw, throw a spaghetti shop against the wall and see which, which kind of pasta sticks and, and, uh, and keep doing that because it's all moving so quickly. And I think that, that that's the one side of it is the media buying side. On the flip side of it, I, I think that there's a, an aspect of this where um, it goes back to personality. You know, like Zuckerberg – Mark Zuckerberg may be a tyrant and ruthless and not really care about democracy, uh, and but he is 
he's a tyrant and he's ruthless and he's going to win. And and I don't necessarily – I got that sense from Evan Spiegel when in the early days. I don't get that sense from him anymore. Uh and maybe he's just kind of given up the fight, and 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 this is it. If that is the case, then someone's going to have to come along and buy these guys. Uh, they're just not going to be able to do it at the price that that it's currently at right now. Right. Who would do it? Oh, I mean, well, who, who would? If you'd have asked me that question two years ago, I would have thought it would have been a social media company or a you know a tech company, a Google, a Microsoft, or whatever. Microsoft could do it still. Um, you know, the market cap's only 15 billion today, uh, which is not a lot, all things considered. But that said, a company that would do it, I would believe would be more like an AT&T, a Verizon, a Comcast. Those are companies that are realizing that they, you know, to talk about the number of users, they're, they're, they've hit a wall and a ceiling as far as how many people they can put on, fit on their platform. And so, uh, they need need to get more eyeballs and get more content, and that's how you get more eyeballs. And so, Verizon uh, could easily buy them and you know do something special with them and uh, um, and be able to make money uh, quite quickly. So uh, I can imagine something like that. But you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll see if, if Evan has some some Evan Spiegel has something hidden that we don't know about. Um, you know, he's still making. Uh, uh, almost a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, so wow. it's not something to kind of, I no, think sure. last year, 2017 was 825 million um, in revenue. So it's still not something to stick your nose up just yet. Oh, no, that's true. All right, let's um, let's finish this out with Jack Dorsey, who uh, came out in favor of Alex Jones this week. Which <laughs> um, is a, a sort of um, a surprising thing to do. Nick, did this surprise you? It, I have to say, honestly, it fucking shocked me. I mean, it shocked me in a way that few things in Silicon Valley have before. For, you know, first of all, kudos to Apple after they finally reached the trillion-dollar summit to, to, uh, for finally saying, you know what, we don't want this guy on our platform. Like, great. What took you so long? It took a few years is the first thing. Uh, the second thing is I don't think Facebook, YouTube, any of those companies get z- any kudos. I think it's diabolical that it took them this long to to get him off the platform. This is not a free speech thing. This is an attack thing on families who have lost their children to gun violence. I, I just don't think that there's any world in which uh, these companies should allow someone like that with – to, to say those things on on their service. I, if you owned a restaurant and someone walked in and said that, you would ask that person to leave. Uh, you would demand that they left and, and, and the fact that these tech companies took this long to do it. And then, of course, there was Twitter where Dorsey comes out and says, uh, you know, he hasn't violated our terms of service. I'm sorry, if, if, if a monster and an asshole like like Alex Jones hasn't violated your terms of service then you need to change your terms of service, in my opinion. I mean, and the thing that's so mind-boggling to me is that a lot of the people that work at Twitter are good people. Like, they are good, thoughtful, kind people. Biz Stone is one of the the nicest people I've met in Silicon Valley. Why – I can't understand how someone like Biz or people like Biz um, haven't, you know, started protesting in in the Twitter lobby – uh, for something to change because this is it's not about free speech this is like about being a fucking asshole that's essentially what it comes down to yeah being a monster i mean the thing that surprised me was that he um 
he had a lot of cover for this. You know, Tim, I mean, as, as you noted in, in, in your story earlier this week, Tim Cook, Sundar uh, Zuckerberg um, had all come out and um, and said, you know, like th- th- this time it, it's not okay. And, and um, uh, so Dorsey, he could have been silent if he felt this way. He could have done the right thing and said, no, get this bum off. But it's just shocking that he he flew in the face of, of other uh, you know similar leaders who 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 done the right thing. It just it it's, it defies uh, uh, insanity. I and it's and what's so what's so amazing is that um, I, he goes afterwards. He went on uh, Sean Hannity's radio show to kind of. It 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 just I it just I don't know I I, I don't understand if it does maybe there's maybe there's something I'm not getting maybe there's some data out there that says that like uh, a majority of the users on Twitter are right wing trolls that um, if Dorsey gets rid of people that he will uh, if Twitter gets rid of certain right wing people like like Alex Jones that um, that they'll go too and the company will flounder and die. Um, I, I just I don't know what it is. I I just think that um, uh, that the that the whole thing just seemed bizarre. And the thing that's so frustrating from a media standpoint, from someone who's covered these companies and especially Jack Dorsey for so long, is that every time one of these things happens, he says, "I'm sorry, you know, we'll do better next time," and that's it. And that's, it's, and the, and everyone's like, "Oh, okay, okay." I mean, this time there was definitely a response that. Uh, um, was you know there was definitely a huge response, but um, I just think that it's um, it's it's really disheartening. I was actually just this week, um, just today, um, I was looking through the Twitter book that I wrote, Hatching Twitter, for, for reference to something I was trying to find, and I came across the pay the chapter where they they first start Twitter, and it's and I I was I read it, and it's like a really sweet, poignant moment where all these friends are like, "This is amazing!" Like I'm going to sleep, good night, and they're all talking to each other about yoga and drawing classes and things like that, and it's unbelievable to me that 12 years later, how far this company has strayed. Um, it it just really is it's staggering. Well, geez, on that optimistic so, note, Nick, thanks for uh, for ruining everyone's weekend. You're so fucking welcome, John. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and uh, and waste uh, waste 15 minutes with us. No, it, it was it's a thrill, Nick, as it always is. So th- thank you for having me. Thanks to my guest today, Jeffrey Pollock. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with me, Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave the greatest review for anything you have ever left in your entire life while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, and thanks, of course, to the sponsors of this amazing show, Vitamin Water, Fleur, and Mattress Firm. Please support them the same way you support this podcast so we can keep doing it. I will see you all next week. I have a great, great guest next week who's going to talk about immigration, what happened down at the border, and what's going to happen soon. You have to tune in. It's going to be just as good as this one. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.